this past week, uh, Nani and I were in uh, Belmont, North Carolina for an Acts 29 uh, assessment conference. And the, the, the goal of this conference would be that afterwards our church would be officially uh, partnered into the Acts 29 network, which is a network, a, a church planting network that exists to see churches planted across the globe. That is our hope. We hope that one day we would be able to send out other churches and, and, and fulfill God's mission here for our churches. But one of the many assessments that we had to go through was a preaching assessment. And as I was studying for the sermon that was given to me, um, I I knew that this would be a sermon that would not just be for uh, planters and pastors, but that it was so incredibly relevant for our church body here. And not like not like big C church, like universal church, but actually us here in this place, in this room right now, all of us that are here. And so our text this morning comes from Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 15 and I would ask that you get there if you haven't already uh, uh, been quick enough to just get there in a few seconds but I'm going to sort of frame up our study together before we stand to read this but the book of Titus was written by the apostle Paul to his co-laborer in the faith Titus who has been charged to go set some order to the network of house churches on the island of Crete. The churches of Crete are in a tough place. They are, uh, as their own philosopher puts it, liars, lazy, gluttons. He even says they're beasts. They were a people who functioned as their own Lord and Savior. Not only that, but they had a problem with false teachers, people who were Old Testament legalists corrupting the interpretations of the scriptures to capture the minds of the believers there at the moment. And this is what Titus has before him. Paul says, Titus, you got this. You got this. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to make some order among the chaos. I need you to appoint some people. I need you to establish some men and women who are living examples of what they believe to be true. I need you to establish older women to teach the younger women. And I need you to establish some older men to teach the younger men. I need you to establish some other men as elders, as leaders who are actually genuinely in worshipful surrender to the God they will teach others about. That's the only combat, the only weapon you have against the cultural depravities of Christian culture. That's the only weapon you have to restore all that has gone wrong there. Paul is essentially saying, I need you all to press into the grace of God. Family, I must already lay before you a question. Is this true of us? Are we a people together who are pressing into the grace of God? Look around you. Does this describe us? Men teaching men, women teaching women. 
passionate about truth that has so much so changed us. Before you get the notion that you are to wait upon me as your pastor to make this work happen, notice that Paul is talking to Titus about men and women who already exist. He's not saying, go create them, go fabricate them. No, Paul is saying the believers who are there, appoint them, set them in a place is what the Greek means. Set them in this place. This is their charge. Find them. There is a difference, family, between fabricating discipleship and appointing true, genuine disciples to do the work that God has called them to do. Some people want the church to institutionally disciple them instead of institutionally equipping them to be disciples and grow and mature in community. Some people want their discipleship to happen not in community, but individually. Paul is telling Titus, find the ones. Find the ones who are pressing into the grace of God. Find the ones who understand that it's grace that saved them and grace that will teach them. The book's main idea is palpable from the very first words. Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Paul is talking about faith and fundamentals. He's talking about doctrine and devotion. He's talking about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. He's talking about belief and behavior. Paul is setting Titus up to go help these churches connect what they know about God to their hearts and their hands. And this, that's the warning. That's the warning for us this morning. The warning is this, that you and I will lead, you and I will be, be in light of what we believe to be true. Our affections, our meditations, our assessments, our drive to be in community, our drive to disciple one another, our drive to parent will be formulated and declared with our bodies the totality of what we hold true about God. Family, could we together ask God this morning, is all of my life, not just, the, not just the life that I have in public, is all of my life telling of the grace of God. Paul's going to make the case to Titus that the same grace that saved you is the same grace that compels you to live in light of it. In other words, salvation always shows its proof and grace always tells on itself. Those are our two thoughts under the title, Grace from Start to Finish. So would you stand with me as we read our portion of Scripture, and then would you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from God this morning. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 reads, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Oh God, make your face shine upon us this morning. Let us not get so lost in our roles of husband and wife, parent and child, pastor and congregation, but rather let us do all that you have before us, that you have given to us, to your glory. As we hear from your word this morning, God be with us. Gift us all with the gift of understanding this morning. Lord, we love you and we need you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've shared this illustration before. I think it was back in February. I used it as sort of a call to salvation. But if I could bring it up again, so if you could humor me, if I could use this illustration again and really kind of use it to to give another layer. A few months ago, a friend of mine was desperate to get out of the house. As you can understand, during COVID quarantine, it drove us all crazy. As soon as the beaches opened up, the first thing he did was get some lunch, go to the beach, prop his umbrella, eat a big hearty meal, and then he went out to swim by himself. And what happened was is that everything was good until it wasn't. He got swept away by a really strong current. Now, pause in the story. My friend, he is a really smart man. Uh, He's not foolish in any way, despite what this story says about him. He's not foolish in any way. He's actually very, very wise. And, and all the things that he's already done wrong in this, uh, at this point in the story, he has verbally communicated to me not to do. Okay? So just give him the benefit of the doubt. Show him some grace. Uh, so he went for a swim. Everything was good until it wasn't. And he got swept away by the current. In his words, he said, all the know-how of how to get out of this situation out the window. Straight panic. Not only that, he had a stitch in his side from all the food that he just ate. So what happened was he's trying to swim out of the current and he tired himself out. He got to the point where he was essentially just using his last bit of energy to kind of shoot back up to the surface, grab a gulp of air, and then as he would get pulled back down, He would just try and keep on doing it and doing it and doing it. He began to wonder, is this it? Is this it for me? The only way that I get out of this is outside of myself. I'm tired. I'm already moving into weakness. I cannot save myself from this thing. The only way I live is outside of me something happening. He was fortunate enough that the current dragged him near someone else. And that person saw him struggling, pulled him out of the water, and dragged him to shore. 
He called the group chat that we're all in, the, me, him, and some of our childhood friends, he, he called us all and he confessed, man, like this happened. I, I, everything I knew how to do to get out of the situation just left my mind. I was foolish. I, was, I broke all the rules. I'd n- I won't do that ever again. Until this day, we have a joke. I even, I even said it to him yesterday. He said, man, uh, yesterday he told me, man, yes, uh, uh, today's a good day for the beach. And I said, you're not allowed to go to the beach anymore. And he said, I promise I won't go by myself. What if I told you that the very next day, this joker went back and did it all the same way again? Everything. The same exact way. You would ask, was his salvation from the water not enough? You would ask, how could he not live today in light of yesterday's rescue? Those would be fair questions to ask. And in the verses laid down before us this morning, Paul has a word for us. In two thoughts, he gives clarity to the same sorts of things about salvation and what comes after. See, there is a product of the grace of God that comes out when it is truly experienced. Grace, when rightly considered, takes the recipient to heart-connected holiness. You cannot experience the crushing weight of the rip current and feel salvation's freedom, then return back to the rip current to fight it out on your own strength. Paul would say, based on these few verses here, you have not really experienced true salvific grace-bought freedom. He begins to explain the nature of transforming grace by giving us the most concise explanation of gospel-centered living found anywhere in Scripture. How to live in light of what is true. How to live in the grace that saved us. Family, Paul has a word for us this morning in the spirit of the question I asked you before when we were going over the context of this book, asking ourselves, is all that Paul is petitioning for Titus to do as we consider whether those standards declare what is true about us? Can't you agree that this is a timely text for us? I don't know about you, family, but I often find myself often around many who can articulate the things of God, who can clearly describe to you the order salutis, and yet are the most ungracious, unkind, and even mean when it comes to the plights of others. Maybe you know this too. Maybe at this point you've said to yourself, that, that's me. Not only that, maybe it's not the arrogance that you find yourself around, maybe, or find yourself in. Maybe it's the laziness. Maybe it's the dispassion. Maybe it's the unapologetic, I just don't care. I just don't care to do this work among my own church. The desire to set order to your personal chaos. 
the discipline of your spirituality. Maybe, family, you are content with the three-foot pools of your relationships, your relationships with God, and your relationship to your church. Paul has a word for you this morning. In verse 11, Paul's first thought is the greatest news the world has ever seen. The greatest treasure that you and I have ever been given. The grace of God in salvation by Christ's atoning work on the cross. And it is in Christ that God's grace is revealed to the uttermost. And family, God has not kept his grace a secret to us. Nor has he made access to it exclusive to himself. God has not withheld from his people both the common graces of this world, like air and food and sleep, which all tell of his wonderful splendor, nor has he withheld his saving grace of his son. The pardon, the redemption, the restoration, the holiness, the glorification family in Christ, you get both. Paul says here, grace for all. Grace for all. In Christ, we get the declaration of God's infinite measure of grace from his perfect birth to his gruesome death. But Christ did not do it for himself. Christ did not do it for himself. He did not. Otherwise, think of our study in Matthew. There would be no need for him to suffer in his life. Otherwise, in his humanity, he could have gone along with the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. Otherwise, there would be no need for him to be perfect in all his law keeping. No. Christ did not come for himself. Christ came for us. He came for everyone in this church family. He came for everyone outside these church walls who have not yet walked in. He came for everyone in your circles and spheres of influence that you can help bring the calling of the Lord onto their lives and bring them here. Christ came for them. God has made accessible to his people his own nature. The fullness of who he is is found in the perfection of his son whom he has given for us. Family, you have taken in Christ. You have taken in his grace. You and I have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus into his possession, into his kingdom, where we were once enemies, dead in our trespasses and sin, God. God, the same one that's all throughout the Old Testament, whom those Cretan prophets misconstrue, God came in and snatched us up without our permission and made us his treasure. Paul is saying, as he said before, you aren't here today if it were not for the grace of God. You're not here today if it was not for the grace of God. I wish you would remember, family, where you would have been if it not been for the grace of God. That you would know the result of what it means for you to be an enemy of him if it had not been for his grace. You would have been swept away by the current, unable to swim out of its strength, drowning in the weight of the judgment pronounced over you if it had not been for the grace of God. 
the grace of the Father that sent Jesus to live perfectly on your behalf, to take on your sin, though he knew no sin, and kill it with his own death, and three days later would rise to prove that the Father was satisfied. Grace that bought you, grace that saved you, grace that made you his family. And it doesn't stop at saving you. It compels you to live in light of it. Verse 12, Paul is saying, the same great and glorious saving grace will have an effect on you. It will have an effect on you. But notice, family, Paul's language is not merely bound to behavioral modification in light of your salvation. No, he's saying saving grace gives you passion for good works. Look at verse 14. Zealous for good works. This grace teaches you how to move and it'll give you a feeling, a desire to move that way too. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. The fruit that this grace produces in you is fruit that you desire to bear. Don't get happy with truth alone. Be happy about what the truth's going to do to you. We get all jazzed up with our theological regurgitations, but not adorning that theology with our affections and our lives. Paul still has a word for us this morning. If I can give you a poor illustration to convey this idea. Y'all know I got three savagely wonderful boys over there at this time. This was almost two years ago. So they were five, four and two. We were living in a condo, and we had a routine with bike rides. Our, all the boys' bikes were in the back patio. There was no exit from the back patio. So if you wanted to go outside, you had to go through the front, right? So the, the routine was that Jace, my oldest, he would help his brothers get all their bikes to the front door. Everyone would line up, and then we would go out the front door and around the condo. Well, one day... It's time to ride bikes. And I'm in my room. I'm probably changing my clothes. I don't know. And I just hear Grayson and Kean whining outside in the patio. And my first thought is, bro, don't all these people outside going to hear you whining? Like, what are you doing, bro? They're going to think we crazy. So I go outside and I'm like, what's wrong? And they say, Jace didn't help us. I don't know how to get my bike from back here to the front door. Jace, Jace didn't help us. So I go, and Jace is already ready in the front. He's got his helmet on. He's waiting in the front. I said, buddy, you didn't help your brothers. Why didn't you help your brothers? You know this is what we do. He said, I didn't want to. I wanted to get here first. The lack of doing what is right for Jace in this moment, the lack of doing what was right was not because he didn't know what was right and wrong. It came because his affection for what was right was lacking. Family, as true as this was for the people of Crete, as true as this was for all of us here, as true as this was for Jace, my son, his affections for control and position caused him to behave as so. You could be longing for comfort. 
You could be longing for acceptance. You could be longing for control or power. And so with your affections, you will be driven towards those longings. You will act. You will do in light of those desires. That's the danger of idolatry. That's the danger in believing in your own ability to work your way into a right living, into a right outward expression of our theology. When you try to do it on your own, you are not really doing it right at all. Paul is saying godliness is not an option. It's essential. The rules, the standards, the goalposts, they don't change or move. But the motivations within us, the reasons, the why we do, those change. Love for God, love for the grace of God is the primary motivation of the Christian's life. Who are you discipling? Who are you being discipled by? What is your spheres of influence? Family, gospel change is from the inside out. A healthy heart shows its fruit and grace will always tell on itself. Lean on grace and grace will teach you and grace will change you. Apply this, apply this to our homes. Apply this to our families. Apply this to our outside relationships. Apply this to our church here. Apply this to our city. Can't you feel the weight of that? Somebody does. Beloved brothers and sisters, there is more grace for us to be had this morning. Grace that teaches us to live. Grace that positions our affections for godliness. There's more richness to be found in these pages. Look at verse 13. Paul is saying, we are obligated to lean upon this grace until the work of it is completed. You may be tired. You may be weary. You may be feeling at the limit. Rest on grace, my beloved. Rest on his grace with your eyes. Uh, With your eyes. Not on today's promises. Not lean on grace, be changed by grace, be taught by grace, as Paul says, until the end. Because family, there will be a day. There will be a day. What Paul is saying is lean on this grace until the day. There will be a day when the idols that tempt us are undone forever. There will be a day when the sin that haunts us is no more. There will be a day when the brokenness of our world will be made anew. There will be a day where the tired sanctified becomes fully glorified. Family, Paul is keeping our eyes on the day of the Lord. Where our blessed hope is revealed and our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is seen by every eye. This grace of the past, it still works today and it will carry you into the future day where the glory of God is revealed. The grace of God is here to train us today to look towards the day of the Lord because today the things of this world will have us look to any other day. Sin would have us look towards our past, but because of the grace of God, you get to look towards sin's abolishment towards the future. 
Grace reminds us that we have nothing to fear, nothing to feel shame for, nothing that stands to condemn us because God in Christ has brought salvation to his people by giving himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. Today we declare these things. Today we exhort and rebuke. Today we don't let anyone disregard us because grace has saved us. Grace has trained us, and one day grace will take us home. Stand with me in worship.